All right, open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 3. As I said, when we, um, when we began our study of this book, um, Paul was going to spend a lot of time at the beginning dealing with the subject of sin. You see, Paul did not have a full understanding uh, of where this church was spiritually at. Uh, if you remember, Paul did not start this church. He started many, but Paul did not start the church in Rome. Now, he certainly had some knowledge of them. He had a, a limited knowledge, but he was never able to visit there outside of being imprisoned there. He was never able to visit the church there. And so he wanted to make sure they had a correct understanding of sin and therefore its consequences. And most importantly, a need for a savior. Okay? You need to know what sin is. You need to know how it affects you and others and therefore the consequences of that. And then, of course, he went from there, and he, or I should say he will go from there, and he'll talk about many, many other things, justification, sanctification, and all the things that apply to our Christian life. Now, a major problem on the subject of sin, and I don't mean just in our text, this also applies in our world today, um, but one of the major problems is that people don't realize that sin separates us from a holy God. You and I may, but as a natural man, the unregenerate man does not understand sin separates us from God. They think uh, they can have sin in their lives. They think that they can literally continue to live in sin and yet still be heaven bound. You probably have met or still know many people just like that. I mentioned some earlier. It's like, oh yeah, they're looking down from us right now and you're going, really? But that is a a mindset. And starting here in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 to where we are this morning, even the Jews were some who struggled with this issue. The Jews in our text, just like millions of people today, they had a false sense of spiritual security. For the Jews, of course, it was because, you know, they were God's chosen people, right? They're descendants of Abraham. We know they were circumcised under the covenant. They and they alone were given the very law of God. And guess what? They thought they had their golden ticket to heaven. And therefore, Paul, like any good preacher, could not let that stand. And so he basically took chapter 2 and he shot down everything that they believed about themselves as Jews. Everything they held to, he shot it all down and says, that's not what is true. He also told them that, you know what? You guys are actually hypocrites. You're stubborn. He says that you are unrepentant. He said right there in verse 9, you've heard me read it before. He says, listen, there's going to be trouble and distress, not just for the Gentiles, but he says for every human being that does evil. That pretty much says it all, but yet he adds more. He says, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. First for you, the Jew, who thinks he's heaven-bound, who thinks he's God's gift to humanity. He says, there's going to be trouble and distress for you who does evil. There's not going to be a free ride because of your heritage, because of your, your physical descent from, from Abraham does not mean you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. 
He told them in chapter 2, verse 23, that you guys are dishonoring God. You claim all these things, but yet you live your lives dishonoring God because you break the law. It was so bad that he told them in verse 24, he said, you guys, you the Jews, are actually blaspheming God's name among the Gentiles. The entire world of Gentiles, basically everybody who's not a Jew, is looking at you saying, you, you, you make a wreck out of the very name of the God you claim to worship. And then in verses 27 through 29, Paul pretty much just lays it all out, showing these Jews that their understanding of physical circumcision, which, by the way, was a really big to-do if you were a Jew, okay? But he says, your view, your understanding isn't going to cut it. He says a true Jew, if you will, a real Jew, was going to have a circumcision of the heart. It wasn't just about the physical, it was a circumcision of the heart. He says that's by the Holy Spirit. It's not by the law. Doing doing what that says and picking and choosing the law, what you want to do, isn't all of a sudden going to make you heaven bound. But what they believed and what Paul said, that's no minor distinction. That's an eternal distinction of what they believed and what the truth was. And the point being here is that the Jews believed that all of the blessings that that God had granted them, which, by the way, were many. They were a blessed, privileged group of people. But Paul is saying, look, it, it didn't include salvation. It did not include salvation. Paul, though, is saying in so many words that you cannot say, I'm a Jew, and be protected from judgment. You can't just stand before the, before the throne of God and say, oh, I'm good, I'm just going to keep walking, I'm, I'm a Jew. Oh, okay, go right ahead. It doesn't work that way. But that's how, they, that's how they thought. He says that you, the Jews, just, and here's the kicker, just like the Gentiles. That kind of had a little rub on it there. Just like the Gentiles, he says, you are in bondage to sin. And there are consequences for that. Paul has dedicated to telling them that it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Believing you have a secure future is nothing more than your feelings. That doesn't change anything. He's telling them the Jews, just like the Gentiles, are depraved and they are drowning in their sin. And he says, guess what? It's the same for all mankind, everybody. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. I don't care if you're the Pope. I don't care if you're Mary, the mother of Jesus. You're in sin, everybody. This is why Paul said at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 9, he says, are we any better? And he, he answers it, no. And he says, and then he says, he keeps, continues to read there in verse 9, he says, look it. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, the Jews didn't like their names being mentioned in the same sentence as the Gentiles, but he literally says Jews and Gentiles alike, that's a rough word for them, are all under sin. And therefore, continuing forward, Paul, the smart guy that he is, is thinking, you know what, what better way to verify what I'm saying than to go straight to the scriptures. The very scriptures that God gave only to the Jews. If anybody should know this, it should be them. He says, I'm going to go to those scriptures to verify what I'm about to say. That's what you and I look at as the Old Testament, right? 
And so in verses 10 through 12, Paul uh, was pulling from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to put a little emphasis on this, but, but look at how direct it is. He could have just said this and stopped, but look how direct he is. He says, there is no one righteous. If that wasn't enough, he says, not even one. There's no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands or understands God. No one who seeks God. I mean, no one and no one and no one. No one, right? All, another big word, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. In the Hebrew, because that comes from Psalm 14, that literally means moral filth. There is no one who does good, he says. Not even one. Well, that says it all. You could just close the door and say, think about that for a while. Go chew on that, okay? He's telling these Jews that the scriptures teach that the whole world doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your heritage is, I don't care who you're related to, the whole world is guilty of sin and there's no one who escapes that label, not a single person. Okay. Well, from there, we're going to pick up right here in verse 13 and continue, of course, in our text. And let me just say that the description of mankind, as we continue on from verses 13 through 18 this morning, the description of mankind gets worse. <laughs> okay? It's even more descriptive. He's going to use uh, anatomical or, if you will, bodily parts as an illustration. He's saying these things are contributing to your condemnation. Okay? And you'll see what I mean as we begin to read there. Now, the first four things that we look at are dealing with man's speech, okay? Man's speech, our conversation, how we communicate, right? Uh, L.B. Flynn, he says this. He says, Paul uses this illustration to prove to his readers the universality of human sinfulness because with respect to the mouth, who can truthfully say, I'm not guilty? That's true, any person alive could never say when it comes to what spews out of their mouth, oh, I'm not guilty. No one can say that, see. Now, some of you might remember um, uh, many years ago, I guess a term, G-I-G-O. Do you remember what that meant? Garbage in, garbage out. You go, oh yeah, I haven't heard that in a while. Now, it mostly back in the day was dealing with uh, computers, right? Your input and your computer determined the output, right? That's kind of where that, that came from. If, you, uh, if, you, if your input to a math problem is flawed, the output is going to be the wrong answer, right? One affects the other. It's the very same principle that applies to you and me. It applies to mankind, okay? What comes out of us is determined by what goes into us. Okay, Proverbs chapter 10, verses 31 through 32. It says, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. See where he's going there? What's happening inside of here is coming up out of here. It had to get in there first to before it can come out. 
Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good which is stored up in him, right? He's storing up within him good things. Therefore, guess what? That's what comes out. But on the flip side, the evil man brings evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him because that's what he's putting in. Therefore, that's what's going to come out. See? Well, let's begin in verse 13. He's still speaking, of course, on the depravity of all mankind. Paul here is going to mention the effect that sin has on the sinner. Okay? The effect that sin has on the sinner. Here, Paul, if you're writing this down, Paul is pulling from Psalm 5.9 as well as 140 verse 3. But he says here in verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Well, that's kind of a rough way to start, isn't it? <laughs> wow. He begins with those words, their throats, this is, this is unregenerate man, all. Their throats are open graves. What comes up from the inside escapes through the throats and it's like the venting of an open grave. MacArthur gives a simple illustration when he says, where embalming is not available, as you know the Jews don't embalm, when embalming is not available, a corpse is placed in the ground and then covered up, not only to show respect for the, the, the deceased, but also to protect passers-by from viewing the disfigurement and the smelling of the stench of decay. But the natural man, the unregenerate, keeps his throat wide open and in so doing continually testifies to his spiritual death by the foulness of his words. He's saying here, folks, that, that the heart, if you will, the inside, is like a grave. It's like a tomb. And what comes up through it, through the throat, through the mouth, reveals spiritual decay. That's how bad that is. It's, that's just like Matthew 12, right? What does he say? Out of the overflow of the heart. It comes out, the mouth speaks. Here, it's like a tomb. You're spiritually dead inside. What do you think's gonna come up out of you? See, spiritual decay, if you will. That's what is verbally coming out of there. It's like the stench of decay. That's how God looks at that. Following that, of course, is yet another description uh, that Paul gives to man's sinfulness, and that is, he says, their tongues practice, practice deceit. The NAS says they keep deceiving, same thing, okay? Man, this is so important, folks, man just cannot stop lying. We even make up words, right? Fibbing, white lies. We even make stuff up to make it sound like, oh, it's okay. It, it's okay in business, Right? Ken was telling me earlier, if you're doing this in business, it's fine. It's, it's, it's okay then. Like, wow, didn't know the rules changed. I mean, he doesn't believe that, of course, but that's what he hears. See? 
But man just cannot stop lying. I heard someone say recently that if, the, if, if, every, if every government in the world, it's all the governments of all the nations in the world, all of a sudden said, today we're going to start telling the truth and everything we say. If that happens, World War III will start tomorrow. Just like that. The world literally functions on constant lies. Constantly. And by the way, that's actually the Greek tense of the verb. It shows continual. It shows repetitive deceit. For millions of relationships, they function on lies. Businesses, they strive every single day on lies. Many politicians literally wake up every day and have to lie yet again so they don't get caught up in their previous string of lies. Because when you lie once, guess what? You got to keep lying to cover up your previous lies. But, but the world keeps doing it. They're going to keep lying. And it's nothing new. It's not just in our world. Even back in Jeremiah Chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. He says, They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. You think of the bow and arrow. They make ready their tongue. That's like a bow, but it shoots lies. It has no truth. I'm sorry. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from sin, one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. He says, beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver. Every friend a slanderer. Friends deceive friends. And no one speaks the truth. They have, taught their, they have literally taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves in sinning. You live in the midst of Deception. I mentioned this morning, in the, in the, as we discussed it at, at 9.30, that many, many years ago, I walked up to a, a contractor where I was doing some work for him. I said, well, this is the problem. This is what's happening. He just, without even one second, just lie to him. What's the problem? <laughs> because that's how man does it. Just lie to him and move on. It's just as simple as that. Lying is the norm. It's a typical and standard way of life for the unregenerate. And here's the killer, folks. You ask a liar if they like being lied to. And before they can say a word, they'll turn around and lie to somebody else. Because that's just how it works. Everything is full of lies. Well, just when you think you've had enough, you can chew on that for a little bit. The wickedness of man is now described in verse 13 by saying the poison of vipers is on his lips. William Hendrickson says words can be flattering, but the speakers cannot be trusted. Flatter, flattering things, they, a lot of them are lies, making you feel good. It's a lie. Speakers cannot be trusted. He says they, they resemble a viper, which under their lips, at the base of their fangs, are equipped with sacks filled with deadly poison. You think you're talking about a snake, but you're talking about a human being. 
See? Now, it's hard not to go through that without thinking of James chapter 3. Maybe some of you thought of that. Turn your Bibles over there real quick, if you would. James chapter 3. We went through James before. It's been a little while. This is what James is a very practical book, very challenging book. But in James chapter 3, starting in verse 2, speaking of the tongue, of course, he says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check, which is nobody. So he gives an illustration. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, remind yourself of how small the bit is and how how big the horse is. We put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal or take a ship. As an example, although they're so large and they're driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider that a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Think of California every year. Thousands, tens of thousands of acres are burning, maybe because the backfire of a dirt bike, a little spark. But it's burned thousands of acres. The tongue also is a fire, verse 6, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of what? Deadly poison. I'll read this just for kicks because it's very important. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with, with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, he says, that should not be. Whoever said sticks and stones will break my bones, but words may never hurt me, did not figure out the evil heart of man. They didn't ponder that part. Sure, when somebody calls us a name, I've been called names before, I've been part of a group of elders in California who was called Satan. So, hey, I can't get worse than that, right? We, we, we look at it sometimes water off a duck's back. Blah, 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 blah. But man is so dark. Man is so evil. They don't care if they say words to you that will literally crush an impeccable reputation. Say things that will get you fired from a job, lose your, your, your sense of living, maybe even break up your marriage. They'll even file a false complaint. We've all seen this. They'll file a false complaint to the authorities in order to get somebody thrown in jail for 20 to 25 years simply because of a disagreement. A boyfriend and girlfriend are living together in sin. Something goes wrong. She makes a phone call. I was, what? Raped. And that's it. 
The, the whole issue of, 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 of innocent until proven guilty, that doesn't apply anymore. Because in about 10 minutes, the police are going to show up at the man's door just because someone says, oh, he raped me. Some of them will go to court. And literally, if the lies can be built enough, a man can spend 20 years in federal prison simply because of a lie, a disagreement. I don't like what he did. That is evil. Personally, I think for the women who do those kinds of things, they should get the punishment that he would have gotten. Maybe that kind of garbage will slow down. But that is how evil man is. Words can be deadly. But man is so sinful, folks, they don't care. They don't care. Moving into verse 14, one more verse which is dealing with speech. This one comes from Psalm 10, verse 7. Paul says their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now the word cursing there, you've you got to think back in your mind, go back a little bit of ways. It means imprecations. There's a word we don't use very often. As Heather was here, she'd write that down. She looks for a new word. It means imprecations. Anybody know what the imprecatory psalms? You ever heard of the term, the imprecatory psalms? It's when David prays to God that he will bring his hand down, that he will bring his wrath down upon his enemies. Those are called imprecatory psalms. Statements. God, curse these people. Wipe them out. Bring down my enemies. Divine retribution. That's imprecatory. So an imprecation or a cursing might simply be you're desiring ill will upon somebody else. You're wishing evil. You're wishing something horrible to happen to another person. It could also be words that are insulting or offensive or slanderous, okay? Psalm 64, verse 3, David is talking about his enemies here. He says, they sharpen their tongues like swords and they aim their words like deadly arrows. Now, folks, what we don't want to do is to look in your English Bible today and see the word cursing and simply interpret it based on our modern day view. Oh, well, Paul is talking about profanity. Okay, we don't want to do those things. That's why I gave you the understanding of that. Even though, even though profanity too is wrong, don't get, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's not the case. That's not what's being said. Okay, so keep that in mind. I think probably all translations will probably say cursing, but keep that in mind. Now, the word bitterness, he says cursing and bitterness. The word there, bitterness, which is connected, it's connected with cursing. It has to do with the manner in which a person abuses another fellow man, okay? It's that, it's that open hostility. It's the, the severity. It's the harshness of what is said. As you guys know, we all as adults, we know sometimes it's not just what we say, but how we say it, Right? That's what he's saying here. I mean, folks, you can be sometimes as vile as possible. Pay attention to our society today because that has become the norm. Okay? 
It reveals the heart of man. It's like they, they, they cringe when they say, they say stuff. It's so, it's so vile and they're so angry. That's our world today. It's not just simple things. It's not, it's not watching Andy Griffith anymore, is it? That's what we see. Well, just when you think that man can't get any worse, the next three verses, and these are going to be coming from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, they deal with the conduct of evil men. The first one will say it all, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, it's hard to say how far that Isaiah was taking that back in his day. We don't necessarily have statistics for 600 years before Christ. But I'm pretty sure that most of you know what our world has been doing today, or at least for the last 100 years. A human being's life seems to be disposable. Have you noticed that? Life. A living, breathing person just like you. It's not like you're getting sick and getting better next week. They will kill you. They will murder you. They will take your life. It's just disposable. Who cares? Setting aside the, the mass killings of, say, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, the killing fields of Cambodia, you can think of the mass graves found in places like Iraq and Syria, Libya and others. And even most recent, they've already found mass graves in Ukraine. Folks, evil men started as far back as Cain. That's pretty far back, I think, isn't it? He killed his brother. He took his life. Why? Well, well he had a better sacrifice than I did. Oh, well, that's certainly a reason to take a life. Don't even get me started on the millions of babies who have been killed through abortion, which most, most of them are performed for convenience. Convenience. You realize in the last 120 years, twice as many people in the United States have been murdered than those who have been killed in all of our wars? Think about that for a second. According to researcher Arnold Barnett of MIT, that's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a child born, he says, starting around the early 1990s, if they lived in one of the 50 largest cities in our country, they literally had a 1 in 50 chance of being murdered. We, we, today, we think of things like go to New York, go to Washington, D.C., go to Cleveland, But I mean, there's, but, but seriously though, I mean, the, especially the larger places every day, go to Chicago. 30 people are shot and killed every weekend, every weekend in one city. In many countries today, people, most of them Christians, are killed daily, every single solitary day. Why? Because of their faith. I believe something different than you. And so somebody says, I'm taking your life. In the past few weeks, we've all seen what took place in Idaho of four college students brutally 
stabbed to death. They said the scene was absolutely gruesome while they were sleeping. No matter what you think about them, no matter what they were doing, they took a knife and bludgeoned them all to death. Just the other day, just this last week, as I was reading the news, a young man, looked like maybe in his teens, was beaten to death. Beaten to death. You know why? They wanted his shoes. They took a human life because I want your shoes. That's just hard to even fathom, isn't it? Oh, I'd like his shoes. I don't have any. Let's kill him. Hasn't changed much, folks. It's sad. That's the heart of man. Verse 16. By the way, verse 16 and 17, it's part of the same sentence. It's three different verses, but it's all one sentence. Okay, so just so you know, it all connects. Okay? So it connects with verse 15. It says, ruin and misery mark their way. So in other words, thinking of the killers, right? Same sentence. The murderers from verse 15, marking their way. In other words, wherever they go, guess what? Wherever they go, there is ruin and there is misery. That sounds about right. Their pathway through life is not only marked by bloodshed, but it's what that leaves behind. Lives, dreams, futures, families are destroyed. Their families, as you know, are left by devastation of pain and loss, hatefulness now. There's a hatefulness. There's a a, a torment they have of their own thinking that somebody, their, 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 their son or their daughter was just brutally murdered for no reason. Their life was taken and now there's just simply despair. For many, that's the worst because it lasts the longest. They can somehow make it through the fact that their child is gone, but for the rest of their lives, they're gonna think of the, the brutality of that life that was taken or those grandkids that will never be there or that college degree that they were going through or whatever it may be. It just simply leaves a way of ruin and misery. And then finishing up that one sentence in verse 17, he says, and the way of peace they do not know. Folks, outside of faith in Jesus Christ, the murderer who started all this will never know peace. Never. One reason is because, as as we have seen, is because they do not pursue peace, do they? They don't desire it. They don't pursue it. They have chosen the road of evil, and therefore, conflict and distress, there's no peace ever. Their human nature lives. It, it, It dwells in debauchery. That's how they think. It's what makes them tick a heart, and a mind, and now their actions are the very definition of what dwells in them, and that is evil. They're a tree that produces rotten fruit. Like the Greeks, you know, the Greeks years ago, they never had a word for humility. They didn't like being humble, right? They never even had a word for it. It didn't exist, Here, the wickedness of man does not know or does not understand what peace really is outside of Jesus Christ. Every day when they get up, 
It doesn't change what's going on inside of them. It's turmoil. It never goes away. And now finishing this morning in verse 18, and here he's going to be pulling from Psalm 36, 1. And, and this really boils it all down to this, okay? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That, this, that sums it up, doesn't it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only are they spiritually dead, they have no fear of the God who made them. It's like they're taunting God, right? They have no fear of God. It's like they're taunting him. Even though God knows everything they think and everything they do, they have no fear of his judgment. To them, God has no authority over them. I do what I want, no matter what people think. To quote Hodge, he says, the reckless wickedness of men proves that they are destitute of all proper regard of God. They act as if there were no God. There were no being to whom they are responsible for their conduct and who has the purpose and the power to punish them for their iniquity. On this earth, they are their own God. Period. You want to know where the heart of man is? There you have it. Now, as we close this morning, thinking back, as we went through those verses, thinking back to where we started, uh, thinking back to Paul's intent. Why did Paul give these verses, right? Why did Paul share these verses? Understanding, folks, that every human being will stand before God. I want you to know that. I don't care if it's your relative, it's you, it's your child. Every human being being will stand before God, Jew and Gentile, and there will be no favoritism and there will be no excuses. All of us were born in sin and outside the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in sin. Nobody will get a free ride. No one will have any explanations that God will accept. As we've seen from these verses, as well as the ones that we went through last week, we should all understand that without a Savior, look at those verses, without a Savior, man is absolutely doomed. Period. None of us have a magic eraser for sin. You heard me say it a million times, I'll say it a million one, there's one thing that will stop your entrance to heaven, sin. Only one person is going to pay for that sin. And you only have a choice of two. You in hell or Christ on the cross. That's it. Folks, there's only one mediator between man and God. The man Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Jesus says that he is the only way to God and he's therefore... He's the only way to forgive us our sins because once again, that's what keeps us there. He's the only way to get forgiveness of sins. You all know John 14, 6, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And there's that word again we've been seeing all along. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your heritage is. I don't care who you're related to. I don't care how much money you have. No one. Folks, man's sinfulness 
must be a part of the gospel message. If we don't grasp what these verses are saying, the people will never know their need for a Savior. Okay? The gospel message begins here. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is not the gospel message. Asking Jesus into your heart is not the gospel message. It starts with understanding that, as it says so clear here, we are evil, filthy, doomed sinners. And with that understanding, we will recognize we need a Savior because on our own we can't do it. I hope as as we are out and about in our world that the Lord gives us that opportunity to share Christ, you'll understand that people need to realize they're sinners and that that is the issue with sin. We meet people that are labeled nice, good neighbors, and sure. But those are our definitions of those, not God's. God says, you're a sinner. You have fallen short of my glory. Take that with you. Understand how much God has blessed you because you're involved in that. I'm, I'm involved in that. We're all those things, but by the grace of God, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can go through this passage where Paul simply decided to prove what he's saying. And we like that in the sense that he's proving it by using Scripture. We look at that today. What's the best interpretation of Scripture? And that's other Scripture. And that's exactly what Paul did. And Lord, he revealed, to really to, even though it's to the Jews in the passage, he revealed to really to all mankind that we are evil. There's no one righteous, not even one. Our throats are open graves. There's no one who does good. We're all liars. Lord, not that we want to go around telling everybody that, but Lord, at the same time, people need to realize that without understanding that, why, why do I need a Savior? Why isn't God going to accept me the way that I am? I am a good person. Lord, give all of us an understanding of where we once were and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. But Lord, also give us the words to share if you give us that opportunity with others. It's a delicate subject. You don't just want to walk up to somebody and say, you're a filthy sinner. But Lord, help us to understand how to share those things, how to get people to understand that they have fallen short. They're imperfect people. And Lord, uh, through the words that we give, use your Holy Spirit to to open the heart of others as, uh, as we did ourselves many years ago that we need Jesus Christ and none other. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.